0: Well, amen, what a great truth. Aren't you glad that the message has come? Whosoever will, let him come. I mean, if you have your Bible tonight, I want you to open with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when you find verse 33, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, if you're physically able to do so, I invite you to stand to your feet with me, please, out of respect of God's word. I'm going to read two verses tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33 and 34. And then I want to have you read one of those verses with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Verse 34. Is the text verse for tonight. I'd like us to read that verse together. You ready? Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. I want you to notice the last little phrase in that verse I speak this to your shame. What we're going to do my heart this week about this passage of Scripture and some other things I'll tie together tonight. And I've entitled this message tonight, The Shame of Christianity, The Shame of Christianity. Let us pray. Father, we thank you tonight for allowing us to be able to come out and be here in thy house again on this Sunday evening. Now, Father, we have enjoyed the fellowship and the blessing of the Holy Spirit today in our Sunday school and the morning service, and oh Lord, we've had a good sweet spirit tonight. And now, Father, we've come to this portion of the service where the bread of life is broken, and I believe you have given me a message to preach tonight. And yea, Lord, once again, as I stand here before thy people, I am well aware of my inability to deliver what you've given me, and, oh, Jesus, my unworthiness to deliver it. And so I want to ask you once again that you would forgive me of my sin. Please cleanse me of the blood of Calvary that I can be a vessel fit for thy service. And Holy Ghost, I would ask you once again to fill me with thy power, that I can preach in such a manner that would be pleasing in thy sight, and that everyone here would feel like this message is for them and them alone. And Lord, may the lost be saved, the saved be challenged, the backslidden reclaimed, the discouraged encouraged. And above all things, may Jesus Christ be uplifted and glorified. For it is in his precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Lord begin to open my heart about this particular passage of Scripture this week. Now, I want to sort of set the stage by looking at this chapter a little bit before we begin to break this down. First Corinthians chapter 15 is often referred to as the resurrection chapter of the Bible. It is fifty-eight verses long. And it deals with the resurrection of Christ in its entirety more than any one chapter in one place in all the Word of God. Now, the first four verses are the gospel of Christ. If someone says, what is the gospel? You ought to say 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. And it gives you what the gospel is, by the way, and what it is not. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel, plus nothing, minus nothing. And then since the resurrection is the last thing of the gospel, then it begins to prove the resurrection. It gives you all those witnesses that saw Christ in physical eyes, bodily after the resurrection, before the ascension to heaven. And then, that goes to to verse number 8, and then the Apostle Paul begins to deal with the false doctrine of those that claiming Christ has not arose. And he deals with the fact that if Christ did not arise, if there is no resurrection, if Jesus did not resurrect, then what we're doing is vain and we're of all men most miserable. But he did resurrect. And so he gives the power of the resurrection. And then when we get to these two verses, it almost seems as if he changes gears I mean, everything to this point has been the gospel and the resurrection, either proving the resurrection or dealing with the false doctrine of those that do not believe in the resurrection. And then he comes to verse 33 and he says, evil communications corrupt good manners. And by the way, there's great truth in that. That was one of those verses and I was a youth director, I was constantly trying to sort of remind my teenagers of over and over and over again, uh, whatever your communication is is what's going to hurt you. It either helps you or hinders you. And evil communications will destroy you. And I haven't preached in a while, but I've got a message on communications. And you have uh, quite a few things that that are your communication. Your music is your communication. Uh, Your movies and your magazines. And by the way, your modems, (laughs) uh, your computers and all those things. And your friends. And here he's making reference literally to the doctrine that is preached. The false doctrine that had been dealt with, that there was no resurrection. And he said, you know, hanging out and reading and dealing with those folks that don't believe that, it'll corrupt you. And then our text first, he said, awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And then he goes right back into the resurrection. Not just the resurrection of Christ, but our resurrection. And and how that we're going to be resurrected like Christ and what kind of body we're going to have, and how the resurrection takes place. And then that great passage in verse 51 through 58 how he describes that we are corruptible and must put on incorruption, and we're mortal and we must put on immortality. And boy, we, we, we can do this because of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of these days we can be resurrected like Christ. But in the middle of it, he has his thought. Some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. You see, he's, he's teaching them about Christ. And he says, now there's some folks there in Corinth that do not have the knowledge of God. They do not understand the virgin birth. Never heard of it. You've never heard of the sacrificial death of Christ on Calvary. don't know what it is. They've never heard of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They do not know that God came to this earth and died and was buried and rose again the third day. They've never heard that He ascended to heaven and that He's coming back. They have no knowledge of God. And I want you to notice the it's phrased. He it doesn't say, I speak this to their shame. He says, I speak this to your shame. There's great truth there. The city of Corinth was a very wicked city. They were worshipers of the goddess Diana. Had a great big temple there, as a matter of fact. As a matter of fact, when Paul was there in Corinth, there was a lot of things happening because of that. A lot of uproar and tumult because they seen some people converted, and so many people got converted that the silversmiths that made all the little statues of Diana were losing their trade. Nobody's buying them because it's converted to Christianity, and yet. Uh, There there was a lot of problems there. It's a very wicked city. By no means was what you and I would call a Christian city. Uh, No means by anything. It was an idolatrous, heathen city. And Paul says, there are some in the city that doesn't have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Now think of that. We live in a nation today that is increasingly dark spiritually. We live in a nation today that is increasingly away from God. We live in a time when the world around us seems that the people that understand who Jesus is is less and less. And whose shame is that? Oh, we, we, we're real quick to blame the world. We're real quick. As, as Christians, we want to we attack what's wrong. By the way, we ought to stand for what's right. We, we ought to stand against sin. And I can list all kinds of things not in our society that's wrong that we ought to stand against. And, but we ought to speak the truth in love. We ought to love these people and know that they, they, they need Christ and they need to be born again. But if they don't know who Jesus is, whose fault is that? It's ours. It's ours. If there's somebody in Cumberland County, Tennessee, don't know who Jesus is, it's our fault. We we, we live here. We're the ones that have the ability to knock on their door and introduce them to Christ, or at least give the effort. We're the ones that have the ability to give them a gospel track and invite them to the house of God. It's our fault. Y'all grasp that? There was a couple things that happened this week that the Lord steered my heart with this. The first one was a letter of one of our missionaries in Thailand. And he was here in the States and he met some people from Thailand. And he's talking to them and According to everything they can see, there's only 1% Christians in Thailand, 99% something else, and only 1% Christian. And the people they met in Thailand, they said this. They were here in the States, and this missionary was talking to them, and they said, you know, the Christians in Thailand said, we can't tell them from the people it's not. I want to let that sink in just a minute. That is a shame. If the people you work for can't tell the difference between you and somebody that's lost, that's a shame. If the people you and I are around every day and they don't know that we're Christians by our attitude and our lifestyle and our faith, and if that doesn't show through, that is a shame. They ought to be able to know who the Christians are. They ought to be able to know. And I reread a portion of a sermon I heard David Gibbs preach years ago. When he was a teenager and how his grandfather sent him all over the country doing some things and things that he thought was a little crazy, giving people money for various reasons. And oftentimes people say, what are you doing? His grandfather would say, this is what Christians do. This is what Christians do. You treat people right. That's what Christians do. And God began to... I at my heart with those two things this week, and I began to think about this message. The shame of Christianity. It is our shame if our families don't know who Christ is. We might want to blame somebody else, but it's our fault. It's our shame if the people around us don't know. By the way, it's our shame if the world don't know. Now, that's an interesting point. Paul just makes that point. And he goes on, he said, you, you need to know what the truth is. You need to be proclaiming the truth. It's our shame if they do not know. And then as God was dealing with me about that, there are two warnings in these two verses. And I want you to notice this, just an introduction. Verse 33, he says, be not deceived. That's the first warning. He said, don't you be deceived about this. Don't be misled. Don't let Satan lead you astray. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. True with your... It doesn't matter. When I I was a youth director, I'd quote that verse to my teenagers all the time, and I'd say 110% of the time. It's true for adults as well as it is for kids. Evil communications corrupt good manners. And there is a biblical truth here. There is a warning... And if I allow some communication in my life that thinks that gets me to think it's not my duty to tell others about Christ, if it's not my duty to be witnessing and testifying about the birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and coming again of Christ, if I let that happen, I have been deceived. So number one, there's a warning, be not deceived. Number two, there's another warning, awake to righteousness. And sin not. God now is warning me not to be deceived, and he's warning me to awake. You got a job to do, don't be asleep here. You're in this world at this time, and God's got a job for you, and I am not to be deceived. I'm not I am to wake up and serve God. Now, having said those things, how is it oftentimes that we find ourselves Aware that we are not doing what we should do, and I'm going to give you some three passages in the Old Testament that we're going to look at, and I want to divide them into a couple of things. Number one, I want you to you ought to jot this down somewhere. I, another thing I was reading this week from Clarence Sexton he made a statement that just really jumped out at me, and it was part of this message: Partial obedience is complete disobedience. Great truth. i to jot that down somewhere. Partial obedience is complete disobedience. Now, those folks that's been in my institute class, they heard that this week. But there's great truth there. And I want to illustrate that with the Bible. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, we'll illustrate it. I want you to open your Bible, first of all, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter number 15. First Samuel chapter number fifteen. Now, if you're familiar with the Word of God and you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that First Samuel uh, begins to give the history of the nation of Israel, where that it was a change from the judges to the prophets, and then from the prophets to the kings. And there was a change there. Samuel was the last of the judges, the first of the prophets. And and then you, you had a theocracy before that, and now you become to a kingship where Saul is the first king. Now Saul is king of Israel. When he first became king, he was very humble in his own eyes, and he had the right spirit and the right attitude. But Saul only partially obeyed God. He did not do everything that God said to do. In chapter 15, you, you have this time that God sent Saul to get vengeance on the Amalekites for what they did to the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And Saul mostly did what God said do. God said, I want you to go and I want you to destroy every." thing that breathes. People, men, women, children, livestock, I want you to destroy it all. And so they go to the battle and they destroy all the people but King Agag and they bring him back. And they destroy all of the livestock except that which is the best and they bring that back. Now that is partial obedience. As a matter of fact, whenever that Samuel met Saul, Samuel said, I have obeyed the will of God. And Samuel says, what am I hearing? <laughs> I don't think you obey obeyed God at all. And so the truth of the matter is, there's a principle that every once in a while, we're, we're sort of like Saul. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, we're, we're like Saul. We partially obey. We make excuses for not doing what we know we should do. We'll say... Well, I know I should be doing this, or I really shouldn't be doing this, but I'm as good as everybody else. Partial obedience. It is complete disobedience. And so we set the stage here that Saul has partially obeyed God. And Samuel meets him. And so I want to begin reading in verse 22. We've set the stage, and I want you to see what is said here. And Samuel said... Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better to sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Now there had been a little, Saul has engaged, and well, the reason I kept the best of the animals is so that we could sacrifice them to God. He's trying to be real religious about this thing. And Samuel says, do, do you think God delights in your disobedience to do what you think is right? No, no, God wants you to obey Him. And the truth of the matter is, you know what God wants out of you and I tonight? Just to read the Word of God and do what it says. It's not hard. It's not hard at all. God just wants you and I to read the Bible and do what the Bible says. It's not hard. The only thing that's hard about it is whether I am going to obey it or not. That's the only decision. Now I want you to notice the next verse. We often quote verse number 23. and It says, For rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry, because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord he hath also rejected thee from being king. Now I want you to notice the judgment now in this partial obedience was complete disobedience. And he says to him, he says, now listen, you know something, rebellions as a sin of witchcraft. Well, that was a wicked sin, it was punishable by death. And, and, and anyone that was involved in witchcraft was the total enemy of God. And so when Samuel says, you know, rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. He says, you know, and, and, and stubbornness. Well, I know I should, but stubbornness. I know I ought to be doing this, but I know I shouldn't be doing that, but stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry, another sin In the Old Testament, punishable by death, idolatry. And it's amazing to me how often that we very flippantly do not do what God wants us to do and do do what God doesn't want us to do and make excuses for it, as if somehow or another, our partial obedience excuses our disobedience. And it does not. And so we find here that in in this passage, that he says to him very clearly, you have rejected the word of the Lord. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, God has rejected you from being king. Now here's the truth. I cannot look at my Bible and pick and choose what I want to obey and what I do not want to obey. I cannot pick and choose and say, well, I, you know, I like that part. Yeah, you know, that seems a little hard. Nobody can really do that. And uh, you know, I, I'm just not going to do that. I, I, it, because when I do that, I reject the word of the Lord. And when I do that, God rejects my service. Saul is now rejected from the place of service and position that God had anointed him and put him there. And his rejection is because he's rejected the word of the Lord. Oh man, I could, I could stay here all night. We, we, we could talk about all kinds of things that God has lined out. And I have to decide, am I going to do what God wants me to do? Well, if I rejected any of that, I'm, uh, you know, I'm in trouble. I mean, My goodness, we could start with salvation. When someone refuses to be born again, they've rejected the word of God. When someone is saved and they refuse to be baptized, they've rejected the Word of God. When someone refuses to study the Word of God, they've rejected the Word of God. When they refuse to forgive the way God tells us to forgive, when we refuse to yield ourselves to God, do you understand the principle here? When I refuse to do what God tells me to do, in clear obedience to the Word of God, I have rejected the Word of God. And I can say, well, Lord, you know what? The the great vast majority of this I have done. But God, I I just didn't... I I just can't. And now I'm in partial disobedience, which is complete disobedience. And so now Saul has been rejected. And what's the plea in verse 24? And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in thy words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now we find out that peer pressure is what caused him to do what he did. We now find out he said, you're right, I have sinned. I transgressed the commandment of the Lord. I knew this is not what God wanted done, but I transgressed it because I feared the people. And I've sinned. You think this thing of peer pressure is new, it's not new, it's been around as long as, as man's been on the earth. And he said, well, forgive me of that. And by the way, he's talking to the wrong person. God's the one he's transgressed against, not Samuel. Samuel cannot forgive him for his sin against God. Only God can do that. And you find here that, that he has transgressed the commandment of God because of peer pressure. By the way, that's you and I are going to face that. You're going to have all kinds of people that's not going to want you to follow God in some area of your life. And, and we could, I could stand here all night tonight and talk about all kinds of things and not even hit the thing that you're going to be hit with, but I guarantee that whenever there's some area of your life and you've got the peer pressure, whether it's from family or friends or from people you're around, Society, work, school, whatever it may be, and you've got this peer pressure, and you, you give in to that because you're afraid of what they're going to say, afraid of what they're going to do. you have transgressed the commandment of God. Boy Saul knew that. He knew that. His partial obedience was complete disobedience. Now keep reading the next verse, verse number 25. Now, therefore, I pray thee, pardon my sin, and turn to you with me, that I may worship the Lord. And he says, Samuel, just sort of forget that. and Why don't you pardon my sin? And you, let, you and I just worship God together. Now, I want you to watch Samuel's answer. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected thee from being king over Israel. Samuel says, now listen, you rejected God and God's rejected you. I have no power over that. I have no power over that. I cannot change that. By the way, Samuel begged God to change it. He wept over him and later on God says, why are you weeping over I've done rejected him. Now here's the point. I can come to a point to where that I partially obey God and then I disobey him in some way, I transgress something. And I do that enough, and God says, okay, Mike, I'm done. I'm done. Boy, I sure don't want to be that. You see, part of the shame of Christianity is because we only partially obey God. Part of the reason that people do not know who Jesus is is because we're like Saul and we only partially obey. And we allow the peer pressure to cause us not to obey. We allow the pressure of people and the fear of what they will do and say and what it will cost us and all kinds of other things. And we, we, we allow that to cause us to partially obey and we find ourselves like Saul. And partial obedience for Saul was complete disobedience and God rejected him from being king. Now I want to give you another one. This is probably one, to me, one of the saddest things in all the Old Testament. I want you to go to 1 Kings chapter number 13. Now let me set the stage for this while you're turning there. By the time we get to 1 Kings chapter 13, David had been chosen by God to be king in Israel, he'd been king 40 years in Israel, and he has died. And then his son Solomon had become king for another 40 years, and he has died. Now Solomon, in the end of his life, by the way, had partial obedience. And as a result of his partial obedience, God took the kingdom out of his hand and rent the kingdom from him, and only left partial, the southern kingdom, to David because of David and his children and took the rest of the kingdom away from him. Now the northern kingdom, which was the other ten tribes of Israel, there was a man named Jeroboam that God raised up to rule Jeroboam. Uh, raise the northern kingdom. God raised him up, sent a prophet to talk to him, and Jeroboam is following God. Rehoboam Solomon's son becomes king in the southern kingdom, and then Jeroboam gets nervous. You see, the, southern, the northern kingdom is still serving Jehovah God. The temple is still in the southern kingdom, and Rehoboam gets nervous. And Rehoboam says, "Ah, boy! I tell you, what, I can't have people serving God. Why well, they're going to go back down there to that temple in Jerusalem?" And they're going to go down there That them three feasts out of the year. They're going to take their sacrifices down there. They're going to continually be going to Jerusalem. They're going to continually be under the influence of Rehoboam. And then they're going to, their hearts are going to go back to Rehoboam. They're going to kill me. And Jeroboam says, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make my own religion. And he builds two calves. And he puts one of them in Bethel. And the other, he takes all the way to Dan. And he tells Israel, these are your gods. And he has people to begin to worship those instead of worship the Lord God Jehovah. And now there is complete disobedience from Jeroboam. But in chapter 13 of 1 Kings, I'm not concerned with Jeroboam as much as I am with an unnamed prophet. So we've set the stage for what's going on. There is this idol worship, this idolatry in the northern kingdom that is started by Jeroboam. And he's got, all of these, he's got these two calves, and they're, they're worshiping these calves. And by the way, he's saying, these calves brought you out of Egypt. Man, it sounds reminiscent of what they did in the wilderness there. And now you, you find that God sends an unnamed prophet to deal with Jeroboam in chapter 13. And I want to begin reading there, and I want to show you something. And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord into Bethel, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. So here's a man of God. And he comes out of Judah, the southern kingdom, to the northern kingdom. And he comes to Bethel, as Jeroboam is standing there in burning incense on that altar to that idol. Y'all got the picture. Now watch what happens. And he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord, and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee he shall offer the priest of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burned upon thee. Now he, get this picture in your mind. It's one of these great things that happens. He comes and here's Jeroboam standing beside this new altar he's just created and this new idol he's created and he's burning incense on the altar and here comes this man of God and he cries against the altar and he said, there's going to be a child born to the seed of David, Josiah by name. By the way, that was a long time before Josiah was born. I mean, you've got a long time coming to this. You've got centuries before this happens. And there's a prophecy and God says, hey, I'll tell you what, I can see down through time what's going to happen. They're going to keep burning. And when Josiah comes on the scene, he's going to have a revival and he's going to get rid of this altar and he's going to take the priest that burnt upon this altar, he's going to take their bones and burn it on the altar, and he says that to the altar. Then he says something else. Look at verse number 4, or 3. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes shall be poured out. He says, by the way, to prove that God sent me, this altar is going to be rent or broken, and the ashes that are on it are going to be poured out. Now he says that. Now here's Jeroboam standing there listening to this. And he he makes that prophecy, the judgment of God, Now notice verse uh, verse number 4. And it came to pass, when the king Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which had cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, Lay hold on him! And his hand, which he had put forth against him, dried up, so that he could not pull it in again to him. Well, it's always been one of these great things, the power of God in my mind. Here Jeroboam is, the king. And he's got his hand on this altar, and this prophet comes, this unnamed prophet. And he says this against the altar, and Jeroboam looks up and he says, lay hold on him, and his hand just withers up and he can't get it back in. Oh my. Now whose side do you want to be on if you're standing around there? Now keep reading. Next verse. The altar also was rent, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. At the same time, Jeroboam's arm gets withered and can't pull in. The altar's broken in half, just rent in half, and the ashes are poured out on the ground. This man is a man of God, and God has sent him, and there's no doubt of anybody that's watching that God is in control. Y'all with me? Keep reading. And the king answered, verse 6, And the king answered and said to the man of God, Entreat now the face of the Lord thy God, and pray for thee that my hand may be restored in me again. And the man of God besought the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him again, and it became as it was before. So man, Jeroboam realizes, I am in trouble, and this is a man of God, and so he asks him to pray, he does, and God restores his hand. And by the way, Jeremiah, Jeroboam's whole mind has been changed by this point. You couldn't have something like that happen to you and continue to be a kind of rebel that like you was before. Jeroboam has not. God has his attention by the obedience of an unnamed prophet. And if this ended here, and this is all we had in chapter 13... That altar probably would have never been restored. Those golden calves would have been destroyed. And we might have had a different history of the northern kingdom. But sadly, it doesn't end. This great prophet that had this great power is now going to suffer some great shame because of partial obedience. Keep reading the text. Verse 7, And the king said unto the man of God, Come home with me and refresh thyself, and I will give thee a reward. And the man of God said unto the king, If thou wilt give me half thine house, I will not go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. So he went another way, and returned not the way that he came to Bethel. And so Jeroboam says, come home with me and I'll reward you. I've learned my lesson. Nope, can't do it. God told me I can't eat here. God told me I can't drink the no water here. God even told me not to go the same way home. I've got to go a different way than I came. I'm not allowed to do that. And the man of God left and Jeroboam, by the way, let him leave. Next verse. Now there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel the words which he had spoken to the king, them they told also to their father. So there's an old prophet in Bethel. I've often wondered why he wasn't crying against the altar. He was a man of God. Why wasn't he saying something against this altar in Bethel? Probably because he was afraid of Jeroboam. His sons come home and tell him what happened, tell him what the prophet said. Verse 12. And their father said unto them, What way went he? For his sons had seen what way the man of God went, which came from Judah. And he said, Sons, saddle me the ass. So they saddled him the ass, and he rode thereon. And he went after the man of God, and found him sitting under an oak. And he said unto him, Art thou the man of God? Uh, art thou the man of God that us from Judah? And he said, I am. And he said unto him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with thee, nor go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with thee in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, that thou shalt eat no bread, nor drink water there, nor turn again to go by the way that thou camest. I want you to notice, here's a man of God. God has told him what to do. And now another man of God is speaking to him, trying to get him not to do what God had told him to do. Now this is a little different than, than Saul, do you understand this? Saul is under peer pressure from the people. Here this man is, a man of God, doing what God told him to do by the word of God. And here comes another fella that claims to be a man of God. And he is now trying to get him to do something that God's told him not to do. But I want you to notice what he says to him. Next verse, it's a sad verse. Verse number 18. And he said unto him, I am a prophet, also as thou art. And an angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back to thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied unto him. Now sometimes we don't like to think of that. We we don't like to think that somebody that says, Hey, I'm a Christian, and I'm a preacher, and I'm a man of God. and Listen, I know what the Bible says, but you don't really have to do that. We don't like to think they're lying, but they are. You, you see, he, he lied to this man. Now, by the way, you know what this man should have said? I don't care what angel said to you. I'm going to do what God said to you. And you and I ought to be stubborn enough in our service to God... That when somebody tries to tell us to do something, it's not in the Word of God, or go contrary to what we know what the Word of God says. It doesn't matter who they are and what they're doing. We ought to say, I'm going to do what God said do. I don't care what you think you heard. But that's not what this guy did. He has obeyed God to this point. He has been used mightily of God. God has used him to turn Jeroboam's heart. And now there is some backslidden prophet that is lied to him, and he's about to fall victim to it. So, watch what happens. Next verse. Verse 19. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Now, by the way, he has now disobeyed God. He knew clearly what he ought to do, and he has now disobeyed it. Oh my, judgment's about to happen. Verse 20, And it came to pass, as they sat at the table, that the word of the Lord came into the prophet that brought him back. And he cried to the man of God that came from Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, For as much as thou disobeyed the mouth of the Lord, hast not kept the commandment which the Lord thy God commanded thee, but camest back, and did eat bread, and Drunk water in the place which the Lord did say to thee, Eat no bread and drink no water. Thy carcass shall not come into the sepulcher of thy fathers. I've often wondered how that killed the spirit of that meal. Here's a backslidden prophet that's now lied to a prophet that's trying to serve God. And the prophet is trying to serve God, should have done what God told him to, but he listened to a liar, and now he's gone back and he's sitting here eating. And now, for the first time, and no telling how long, God speaks to the backslidden prophet and says, Oh, by the way, I've got a message for you. Tell him that because he disobeyed me, he will not die and be buried with his father's, and now this man that lied to him has to give him the sad news that he lied, and judgment's now going to fall. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine all of this atmosphere? Now keep reading what happens then in verse 23. "And it came to pass after he'd eaten bread, and after he'd drunk, they saddled for him the ass and the wit for the prophet whom he had brought back. And when he was gone, a lion met him by the way and slew him, and his carcass was cast in the way, and the ass stood by it, and the lion also stood by the carcass. Now judgment's fallen on this man. This man of God had partial obedience, and it was complete disobedience, and this must have been a sight to see. He's killed by a lion. The lion doesn't kill the donkey. leaves it standing by him and his carcass is in the middle and the lion on one side. Here he is. I'm going to skip a few verses. The man of God hears about it. The old prophet comes and gets his body and has him buried in his own sepulcher and gives commandments concerning himself. That's not what I'm interested in. I want you to pay attention now. The shame of this prophet... He was sent by God to deliver a message to Jeroboam, and he did. But he partially obeyed what God said do, and now he's disobeyed and he's died from it. But that's not the worst of it. You say, what's the worst of it? Verse 33. After this, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way, but made again the lowest of the people, priest of the high places. Whoever would, he consecrated him. And he became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing became sin unto the house of Jeroboam, even to cut it off and destroy it from the face, off the face of the earth. You know why Jeroboam went back and worshiped that calf and fixed that altar? Because the guy that had so much power died in shame. You know what the shame of Christianity is? It's when the people we're trying to win to Christ and we're telling how great God is and they can see the power of God in our lives when we disobey God and God has to deal with us and we've had partial obedience which ends in complete disobedience and God deals with us and the people like Jeroboam say, "There must not be any more to their God than there is my God, and I'll just worship my God." You see what happened? You know what the shame of Christianity is? Oftentimes we're just like this prophet. We know what the Bible says. Saul had peer pressure. But this guy had pressure from some false doctrine from a guy that claimed to be of God who was not of God. And that's why it's important that you and I, that we know the Bible. And you know what we do? We just find out what the Bible says and when some false prophet tries to say something that's not Bible, I like, I'm not listening to you. I'm not going back and eating with you and I'm not going back to drink with you and I'm not going back to your house. I'm going to do what God told me to do and I'm not going to have anything to do with you. You know why? Because here is a very sad chapter where a man of God had an opportunity to do a great thing that would turn the heart of a king. And he did a great thing. He partially obeyed. But his disobedience caused him to lose his testimony, his witness, and what God had done and Jeroboam went back to worshiping the devil. I've been in this thing long enough now that I've seen people that God was using, and then he did some wicked thing and lost their testimony. something they should not done. And oftentimes, you know what started it? It wasn't peer pressure from people. You know what it was? Some false prophet come up to him and said, "I'm a prophet like you. I'm a Christian like you are." Oh, I don't believe the Bible is perfect, but that's not important. I don't believe uh, that God is this God of judgment. and uh, We're not going to preach against sin, but we, we, we love the same God. Next thing you know, they're off into some, something they ought not to have been into. Judgment falls, and they've lost their testimony. Shame of Christianity. Partial obedience is complete disobedience. One more, and I'm done for tonight. I'll make it quick. Go back, if you will, in your Bible to Second Samuel chapter 12. Now, Second Samuel chapter 12. If you're familiar with your Bible, you're familiar with this passage very well. You have a man likened to God's own heart, King David. He has committed a horrible sin. He has committed adultery. He has killed the woman's husband. Uriah to try to cover up the adultery. And God has brought a prophet, Nathan, to deal with the sin, and he's dealt with it. And I want you to notice in verse number eleven of Second Samuel chapter thirteen, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. And I'll take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor. He shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the sun. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, and before the sun. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. We ought to thank God every day for forgiveness, but I want you to notice the great price of partial obedience in David's life and the shame in verse fourteen. Howbeit, now that word means you've been forgiven. I'm not going to kill you, but howbeit, because by this deed. Thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. A child also that is born of thee shall surely die. I want you to notice that oftentimes the shame of Christianity, people don't have the knowledge of God. Uh, We're not testifying witnessing like we ought to, but it's because of our partial obedience. Sometimes it's peer pressure. Sometimes we let some Somebody that's not serving God at all that claims are lying about it get us in trouble. And sometimes we let our sin get us in trouble. And we find ourselves like David that we do something that gives great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The shame of Christianity. The Apostle Paul said, Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. It wasn't Jeroboam's shame that the prophet died. It was his. It wasn't Saul's, Samuel's shame that Saul sinned. It was Saul's giving in to peer pressure. It wasn't Nathan's problem that David did what he did. It was David's shame. All three of those caused the enemies of God to blaspheme and it hurt the faith of God and it caused people not to have the knowledge of God that they should have. We come all the way to the New Testament tonight. You want know what the shame of Christianity is? We find ourselves like them. People have not the knowledge of God. Say, preacher, why don't they have the knowledge of God? They just won't listen. No, no, I'm afraid it's a lot worse than that. We're not telling them. Oftentimes we've given in to peer pressure and they can't tell the difference between us and the world. It's a sad thing, the number of churches today, they are nothing more than just worldly organizations with worldly music trying to give an entertainment show and the lost world can't tell the difference between that and what they were in on Saturday night and what they were on Sunday morning. It's a sad thing that Christians, that the world can't tell the difference to us on our jobs. We dress like them, act like them, talk like them, look like them, want to be like them, have our same heroes that they do. It's a shame. Will that peer pressure drive us to that? It's a shame some have not the knowledge of God and oh God burned my heart this week that I need to do something about my shame and that is just repent and ask God to forgive me and come back where I need to be and by the way I can only deal with Mike I can't deal with nobody else some have not the knowledge of God I speak this to your shame. Who would God say that to you about? Family? Friends? Neighbors? Co-workers? Do they know that you're a Christian? Do they believe you're a Christian? Some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I appreciate you being here tonight. You've been very attentive.